together again. Just a, a glorious portion of Scripture. Really the last, well, all the, every chapter in the Bible, of course, is very needful and helpful to us. But you get into certain portions of a book and it just ratchets up. Just the glory of God and what, what we have as believers, amen, in store for us is such a, a glorious thing for us to consider. And it is no different this evening. Look at verse number 3. Revelation chapter 21, verse number 3. These are indeed the very words of God himself. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and shall be no more death, neither sorrow or crying. Isn't that interesting? speaks about tears and then talks about crying. We're going to look at that. Why that's such a significant thing. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Man, who's looking forward to that? How we're just talking about it. You know, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's if it's allergies or whatever it is. I'm looking forward to the day when the body is not like that anymore. She bone no pain. For the former things are passed away. Verse number five, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. What a glorious statement that he makes there concerning. It's a very familiar tone to our ears, very reminiscent of the words of his son. You can see how those two are tied together. Just such a glorious, ooh, I get goosebumps. Just a glorious thing. To see the unity of the will of the Father and the Son working together. Amen. He said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life. What? Freely. Look to the ends of the earth, brethren. Look to all of eternity. Look into infinity and you'll see what a glorious text that is right there as we understand that. Man's salvation is totally and completely dependent upon the Father and His grace through every distance from, from the end to the beginning. It's really quite an amazing thing as we look at this together. Well, here in verse number 3, for the sixth and final time, a great voice from heaven makes a pronouncement from the book of Revelation. In each of the prior occasions, and we've looked at them obviously, we're at the end of the book, in chapter 10, verse 4, and verse number 8, chapter 11, verse 12, chapter 14, verse 13, and chapter 18, verse 4, the loud voice that we heard there is believed, and I believe, to be God himself. Here, the voice refers to God in the third person. It's an interesting dynamic, which indicates to us that this announcement is about God, and not directly from God. And again, we have seen that through the scriptures. The voice announces that the tabernacle of God is now with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Now, what the voice is disclosing to us, and again, brother, we see this, is that this tabernacle is indeed a part of a series of divine sanctuaries. And again, this is always where it goes. This is exactly where it's headed, and this is where it's always going when we look in Scripture concerning these things. This is a part of a series of divine sanctuaries that have progressively, and we see this in Scripture, progressively pointed us, if you will, if you will, revealed the Father's way of being present with His people. Think about this for a moment, brother, and we're going to look at this this evening. And I know Howard has his Bible in Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 47. Brother Dean, if you would, if you can. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And then uh, Brother Harrison, right over there. Way over, i got to look way over there to see Brother Harrison this evening. Good to see you, brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And I want us to notice the progression. Again, as I've always said, every temple, every sanctuary, every tabernacle that we see in Holy Writ does indeed progressively reveal the way in which the Father is going to be present with his people. And we see this here in Howard's text. And of course, we remember the very first tabernacle that was built. In fact, I, I chose Acts chapter 7 because it is Stephen giving us kind of a, if you will, a, a, a rundown of the history of Israel. And so 
Here, we hear the words as Brother Howard reads them, Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 47. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built the house. So what, what is that text talking about? Obviously it's speaking of what? It's speaking of Jesus there is actually Joshua. That's the, that's the Greek word that's used there. But he's talking about what? The earthly tabernacle. The first tabernacle in the wilderness, actually. And uh, in fact, it was one that was what? It was a roaming tabernacle. They would what? They'd fold her up and they'd move it around and then they'd uh, lay it back out again. And then where would God meet with them? God would meet with them in the tabernacle. Amen? In the Holy of Holies. This is where he chose, again, to meet with his people. And he had the presence of him there with his people. So we first see that in the tabernacle of the wilderness. This is what the scripture tells us. Now we progress a little bit, if you will, to uh, Brother Dean's text. John chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22. Now listen, we had the tabernacle in the wilderness that Brother Howard just read. Now it progresses a little bit, if you will. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. And therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture. Okay, so we have the tabernacle, which travels around. It's a place that they would unpack and pack down. Now we have the temple that is being spoken. This is Herod's temple, right? This is the third temple. This is the earthly temple in Jerusalem. Where was God dwelling? Where was God dwelling within that temple? Where was he? He was in where? The Holy of Holies. This is where he at. Again, this is, this is a progression. He met with them here. Now he's, his presence is with them there. And finally, brother, because of what Dean read, Remember what Jesus said? They're looking at going, well, we built this temple in 40-some-odd years, and you're going you're to graze it in three days? And he's talking about the temple of his what? His body, which then produced another progression within where God dwells, the temple that he himself has ordained to be. And Brother Harrison, if you would read there, and we're all sitting here this evening as a place where he dwells, if you're saved tonight. Go ahead, Brother, if you would. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right. So let me ask you guys to see the progression. Can you see it? The wilderness. One that's, one that's movable. To the temple where God chose to be to have the presence, his presence there with his people. Now, what's the temple of God today, brother? What's the temple of God? It is our bodies. It's one that he has again chosen to uh, to dwell there. Amen. He's chosen to dwell within the body. But there's still a problem with it, isn't there? Isn't there a problem with our bodies still? It's not perfected, right? And so there's still some things, of course, obviously during the church age that we're still dealing with. Although God chose to have his presence through the Holy Ghost dwell within our bodies, the temple of God. It's an amazing thing, a stunning thing. So what we see here, again, for the last time in the Bible, again, we see this place, this temple, that uh, has progressively grown, and it's gotten more and more and more holy. And by the time we get here, we've seen what's happened already. The old has gone away with, the new is here. And so when that temple is present, what's, what's it going to be like? Let me ask you, what is that temple, when it's present, what is it going to be like? It's going to be what? Perfect. It's going to be holy. It's progressed to that point. And this has always been God's ultimate aim and goal. You understand from the day that God came down and walked in the cool of the garden. Where's that from? Where, where did God come down and walk in the cool of the garden in the day? From Genesis. What happened? What was he doing? He was looking for Adam. Of course, he knew where Adam was. Adam's hiding. God saw him out. And there we see him there. And what was God's aim and goal then from that time on? Is to what? Is to restore that perfect fellowship that he had with man before Adam became, if you will, 
an insurrectionist. <laughs> One who, as you scratch your reformed beard, you still say to yourself, how in the world did a man who was created in the image of God and had no sinful nature choose to do what he did? It's a crazy and most amazing thing when you consider it. Every tabernacle, every temple, was a picture and a type of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we remember in Exodus, actually when Howard read it, they were given instructions, perfect instructions, that had to be perfectly done because it was representing who? Christ, who was ultimately the other what? The ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple of God. And so this is what we see. This is what we see in our text. This glorious, holy, sinless temple of God that John sees coming down and is taking up residence in the New Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Now we know we looked kind of sort of at the change that took place. We kind of looked at that. But I want you to look at verse number four there. So again, we understand this. It's perfect. It's holy. It's the temple of God that God is now dwelling amongst his own people because all of the sin has been removed. The fall is gone. Everything's gone. It's been restored to perfect newness, if you will. And really, as I said last week, it wasn't really a restoration of anything. It was a creation out of nothing. <laughs> Again, people think, remember we talked about that last week, that the earth here is just going to be restored. That God's just going to restore it. No, that's not the language at all. The new heavens, the new earth, the new tabernacle, the new city. Actually, it's the same terminology. We looked at this. That's used in Genesis chapter 1. The word created, barah, to bring forth something out of nothing. And that's what this is. This is what you see. That's why it's sinless. That's why it's perfect. That's why it's going to be glorious, a glorious place. Now look at here again as we see the things that within the new Jerusalem as this beautiful tabernacle of God as he dwells with men and he's going to be our God obviously he even is now but there's still a separation there look at verse number 4 this again we're looking forward to this brother and the older we get the more we look forward to this and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are what? Passed away. That's an important portion of scripture that John reveals to us there. John does indeed, and we've looked at, give us an insight into the how different and unique things are going to be in the new Jerusalem and the beautiful city of God. He says, first of all, there's no more tears. And again, I said, you see there's no more tears and then there's no crying. Why would he use that terminology? There's no more tears. No more tears is the sum of all that follows. If you notice, everything that follows produces tears. It's an amazing thing. The things that he that we deal with in life, whether it's pain, whether it's sorrow, whatever it might be, it produces what? Tears within us. And so God says here that that's going to be God. There's going to be no more tears. That is the total sum of the things that follow. The things that, brethren, we're dealing with that will never follow us there. That is a beautiful thing. Again, it is new. That stuff will never follow us there. No more tears. How about death? The ominous fear of death is gone. Because, brother, I don't know too many people, very few, in fact, who do not fear death. A lot of people fear death. Just ask them. <laughs> they whistle past the graveyard like it doesn't exist. You ever notice that? And, uh, <clears throat> and I remember... As a young pastor, I remember the first funeral I ever did. It sticks out like a sore thumb. I remember the first bedside I stood beside. Me and Pastor Steve. No, Pastor John was. The first bedside I ever saw someone actually die in front of me. Amazing. What was, uh, what was their name again? I can't remember. He was a little guy. He used to lead a singing here. His wife and his daughter died. Remember, she had a brain aneurysm. I can't remember. Jake Eli. Yep, Jake Eli. And I was standing in the, in the hospital room, standing beside the bed. And uh, they never shut any of the alarms off or nothing. And they shut the life support off. Well, you know what happens. 
the alarms start, things started going crazy. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And she struggled and was fighting her life. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And the first funeral I did, being around someone who has died, is it's a weird thing. I'm used to it now, but it is a weird thing when you think about it. But people are afraid of death. Most of them because, number one, they don't know what happens to them after death. Because they've shut their Bibles. <laughs> they haven't read this. They don't know what's coming for the true believer. That's the issue. The ominous fear of death is gone. Never again will a grief-stricken loved one stand beside the body of a departed loved one. Think about how that's going to be. How about sorrow? There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. Oh, brothers, I'm feeling better already. My body is getting loosened up. Things are feeling better. Sorrow refers to grief of any kind. It speaks of all the troubles and heartaches that you and I experience as we traverse this celestial ball. Think of that. No more heartaches. Anybody, anybody uh, want to say an amen to that? No more heartaches. Man. How beautiful is that going to be? No more crying. Yeah, we do some of that. I just had one of uh, little child come up to me on Sunday and go, why are we crying? <laughs> it was beautiful. Just an innocent thing at all. But that was a good thing. It was an emotional good cry. This, we're talking about the things that produce tears out of sorrow. This is the idea of an outburst or an outcry. It literally means that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that for your children? Have you ever done that for someone you love? Yeah, sure. We have. It refers to those times when we are absolutely overwhelmed and brokenhearted by the events of this life. Notice how I keep saying this life. That's what is going to be removed. No more pain. <clears throat> how about that rheumatoid? Yeah, the rheumatoid arthritis. These things that we all struggle with. It refers to labor, toil, and great troubles. It speaks of disease and disasters, again, as we move through this present world. However, we should not be shocked. We should not be stunned, brethren. Turn with me to the book of Job for just a moment. Look at Job chapter 5. Howard Job chapter 14, if you would. <clears throat> Job chapter 5. Let me show you. Familiar portions of scripture for us here. Job chapter 5. This isn't said once, but twice in the book of Job. And of course, we know many other portions of scripture, but the oldest book in the Bible. Look what it says here in verse number 6. Job chapter 5, look at verse number 6. Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, Neither does trouble spring out of the ground. Yet man is born unto what? Trouble. You see that there? As the spark fly upward. We're born in this life to trouble. To heartache. These things. And these are the things, listen. That's why later on in the text, John affirms to those, to us, what this is going to be like. Because this is all we know. Do you know anything but this? I know nothing but this. I know nothing but heartache and trouble and pain in this life. So, again, here, Job chapter 5. Says, man, you know, man is born in trouble. The parts fly upward. That's what we are. In fact, it gets a little deeper here in Job, in Job chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 there, if you would, how it please. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow. So it's, it's a constant theme, brother. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when we're in trouble, although we are. But again, this is what we know. This is all we know. I like MacArthur one. He preached a sermon one time about the dangerous planet we live on. Go listen to it sometime. It is really amazing when you consider how dangerous this planet really is. Tornadoes, hurricanes, disease. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's a stunning thing. Brother, all that's gone. It's all gone. It's all been removed. No more tears. No more pain. No more crying. No more 
sign from a gap. Imagine that. This again is why John has to, again, reaffirm what he says there. When he uses the language, the term, the words, all of these have passed away. Literally, what that means is that we will never, 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 ever, 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 never, ever, just keep adding them on. Never, never, ever, 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 ever again deal with that which we are accustomed to. That which we are used to. That which we know. That's why, again, John had to confirm and reaffirm to us and to the believers that it's all gone. It's all passed away. God is making all things new. And that is quite an amazing thing when you think this is all we've known. It's characterized our lives since the fall. Every man, every woman, fell. So isn't that glorious when you think about that? You think about what awaits. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new city that God makes. Everything new and creates everything new. Now look back to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse number 5. John, quite frankly, is so enamored by what was just said that he needs to be spurred on and reminded what his task is. What was he to do? What was he doing? Look there, John, or Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse number 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, what? Write. Write these things, for these words are true and faithful. As I said, John here is reminded by God, I believe it's God himself sitting on the throne there, obviously. He's reminded to write these things. And why was he reminded to write these things? Well, it's very simple, brethren, actually. He is to write that which he sees, that which he hears, for the benefit of the saints. Isn't this text a benefit to you? Isn't this a text a benefit to all of us? We read this text, it's very beneficial. It's very good for us to hear these things. So God tells John, keep writing. It's for the benefit of the saints. In fact, very early on in the book, and midway through the book, hey John, keep writing. Because it's very beneficial to the saints. These things are essential to us. So he reminds him there to do that. The one who sits on the throne speaks and really tells John in our really today's vernacular to put these things to paper. And that's what he tells him to do for all of eternity. Again, because it is so beneficial. Because John or the Lord tells him here, and this again is something that we preach all the time. This is something we believe from one end, every stitch, every ounce of our bodies, every ounce of our beings. He tells them to write these things, John. Because why? Because the things that I say are true. Not only are they true, but the things that I say are faithful. And so again, this is a doctrine that never goes away. God's word is always true. His word is always faithful. What he says is always true, always faithful. And it is a beneficiary, it's beneficiary to who? To us, the saints. Praise God for his inspired, preserved word. For sure. We're going to need it tomorrow. We might need it tonight. We might need to hear a word from God. And that doesn't mean I go in my closet, turn all the lights off, and empty my mind. Right, Howard? Empty your brain. Be still and be empty. No. No, that's dangerous, demonic stuff. Actually, you fill it with the Word of God. And then both of those things you fill it with. <laughs> See how important this is? Even, brother, to the very end, to the utter end, it never stops. And we can never stop. We must never move from our doctrine. Amen. Write it down. Tell them all that I keep my word. And I make all things new in the eternal state. Even though it's difficult. Again, this is, again, an affirmation. Even though it's difficult for you and I 
can try and grasp what it means to have a perpetual newness. That's what this is. It's creation. Remember, we, we talked about this a while back when Jesus fed the 5,000. What did he do? Spoke what he already did. He just simply copied what he already did. And that's what this is. He just simply copying, speaking, and saying what he's already done. A perpetual newness. It never grows old. Think about that. We sing that song, I you know, we all sing it. In a land where we'll never grow old. You know, you think First Corinthians 15. Mm. And I don't think we think about it a lot because it's not really written about much, but First Corinthians 15 is the most the Bible says about it. Yeah. But you know what? My whole life you hear most sermons talking about you know, he makes things new and we like the Garden of Eden. No. Much better. Right? Because <laughs> what came first was here. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as us, a new creation would be better, but just us, right? Because when we read there, Paul describes it as like, it's a seed that goes around. You don't know what it is. Right. It's like, it's the smallest of seed, but it comes out. And so it's it just going to be something, right? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, yep. nor has entered into the heart of man, mind of man, Ooh. what God has prepared for them that love him. Yep. But, and then he, you know, because he called us in that. But it's yep. amazing to think of these things that what we've become accustomed to. And I know you didn't mean like it's all sort of leveling, right? All things that come up, all things because of sin, all the things because mm -hmm. of the curse, all. Yeah. And it'll all be done away with. Mm -hmm. And it'll be like, we actually can, we can only, um, I mean, you know, we can't even really touch on it because no. it's simply, it can't even enter into us. It's going to be so much more amazing yeah. than, than we can comprehend. Yeah. yeah, again, that's why John is affirming what it's saying. Because we can. That means, again, it's what we're characteristically used to. I remember not too long ago, your your daughter was in a car accident. That brought sorrow. That brought much angst and all kinds of things to the family, right? That'll never happen again. Think about that. Think about that. All that will be gone. It's a beautiful thing. You know, when you think about, I don't want to get too graphic with my children here, but, you know, you think about my age. Be standing possibly if the Lord tarries. He'll be standing beside me. Right? Feeling sorrow, separation. And take heart, church. That's going to be gone. No more. What a, what a glorious thing. Now, he, again, John here, all through this text, is encouraging us. He's encouraging us by the word of God. The saints are encouraged by what he's told to write. And so look what he does here. In verse number uh, six. And he said unto me, these three words, it is done. It is done. Howard, there be no coughing there either. No yeah, that'll, that'll be done too, right? No more allergies, no more sinuses. <laughs> and he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life. That term is done. It's a most glorious statement, which emphasizes the completion of God's divine task in creating that which is new. Again, brothers, this is something that is going to come to completion. It is done. And not only that, it's, again, we're going to feel the ongoing effects of his creative acts. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, is literally saying, it has become. That's the terminology, really, that's used there in the Greek language. It has become. And as I said earlier, the Father's words here are indeed reminiscent of the Son's words that He once spoke. Again, this, this is why it's all uniquely tied together. What happened at the cross is indeed the linchpin of history. Whether you go before it, whether you go way past it where we are now, it is indeed that which the whole world spins and moves around. What took place there is a glorious thing. You Again, even we get to the end, and the same language that was used by Jesus on the cross 
to create the new creature that you just talked about is the same language used by God when he says it is done by creating that which is the new creation itself. I want us to read these texts together. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 19. Our second Corinthians chapter 5, if you would, 17 through 18. Look at John chapter 19. Again, these words are very reminiscent, very close, very familiar, glorious words. And I want you to listen again to what Jesus said. He uses a couple words here in John chapter 19 that draw our religious affections. Look at verse number 28. John chapter 19, look at verse number 28. We know that the Lord has just turned his mother over to a trusted confidant. Just turned him over, he's on the cross. And he says this, or the Bible says this. And after this, knowing that all things were accomplished, you know, just getting back to what Jesus did there, he never sinned. Even as he's on the cross, he's being obedient to the law of God. How is he being obedient to the law of God? He's turning his mother over to the safety of a trusted brother. That's what they were to do, you know. That was part of what they were to do. And he does it even here. And then the Bible says after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now, what's that word? Accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge Fill a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said three words. Just like it is done, it is what? It is finished. Think about that. Hmm. Makes me want to cry. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. This language, again, as we see here. What he did there is directly tied to the new creature that goes into the new creation. Without this being finished, without this being accomplished, that could never happen. Because one doesn't get into heaven based on their power, on their good works, on their good looks, on their good attitude, but on what he did here. And this being what? Imputed to you by God. The three words set was that destroys all religion. Destroys it all. Destroys every bit of it. Everything men who lost men of reprobate minds are clinging to to get them into heaven. Think of that. The new creature, Brother Howard, if you would that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us a ministry of reconciliation. Does that language sound familiar? New? Old is what? Passed away? Yeah. You see how that's tied, directly tied to what's taking place here? All of it. In fact, I like what one pastor said. Listen to this. He speaks in legal, legalese. Now that it's your, that would be the legally obtained work of Christ on the cross, becomes de facto, which means accomplished reality. That which he did now is brought forth in reality. The Father's words emphasize the new beginning of the blessings that flow from the vicarious work of the Son. You see how those two, those three, the Spirit of God actually, all three of them, the Trinity of God is in complete unity in their wills. That's why it is a work of God. That's like Sunday when we read that text, right? No one can pluck them out of my hand. No one can by force, period. Because we're secure in what Christ has done. We're secure in what the Father has done. Amen? Like I said, they'll have to. Oh, what if they choose to? You're not going to choose to. 
Okay? That's one thing you won't choose there, choice people. You're not just the choice meats in the supermarket. You are the elect of God who's been sealed and saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You're not going to want to jump out. The real thing you should ask is, in the beginning, you don't want to jump in. Why don't you want to jump in? That's a whole man. That's a whole nother. It's actually backwards. Actually, you don't want to jump in. And when you're in, because God saved you and brought you in, you won't jump out. It's crazy. It's crazy talk. Go ahead. I just guess it's funny. So, you know, I love those hypotheticals, right? The straw man argument. So, what do we believe where you can pull yourself up? Okay, so you're saying someone that, honestly, in his heart of hearts, with his mind, he knows that he knows all of it's true. You know what? Think I'm past. I mean, right? It, it, it just it makes it, it's no sense whatsoever. It just, it, it comes down to, it's really, it, and this is something that always insults me, right? But it's stupid. But if you just really come down to it and say, no, if you really believe, you know, they're saying someone can lose their salvation. You really believe, you really trust Christ, you believe the gospel is true, and then you're going to leave it? No. I mean, no way. <laughs> now, can we backslide? Yeah, big difference. <laughs> but you know the beauty of backsliding? The beauty of backsliding is this, that Christ will never leave you there. Mm-hmm. If you're a child of his, you might swim around out there in the sewer a little bit. You might get a little stinky. But I know this, because I've experienced it myself. When he calls you, saves you, and seals you. And you do attempt to walk away. And you are a child of his. I promise you, you won't stay there. No way. Put his hand upon you one way or another. He will move you. You will give everything up. It's not the same. What's that, brother? When you backslide, when you fall back, it's not the same as it was It is not possible for the Spirit of God to leave a child of God out there. You might move away out there. But you know what you'll do? And this is proof that you are a child of God. You will come back. You know why? Because your desires were wanting. Right? You'll be so burdened by the Holy Spirit of God who lives in this temple who dwells there with you oh my no it's just it's utter craziness it, it, it really is when you think about what people actually teach it is utter insanity utter craziness but look here let us just kind of finish this up here again look there if you would verse number 6. And again, this is such a glorious thing. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, brethren, as I said, you go ahead and look. From one end of eternity to the other. Go ahead. Look out there into infinity. In infinity, when you're looking at infinity, they never run into each other. It just goes on and on and on. There's no end to it. Man's salvation, soul, depends upon the grace of God. Solely and completely. John here is reiterating that redemption is infinitely possible. Infinitely costly. That's the thing we don't ever get a hold of. It is not just a blip. It is not just I made a mistake. It is not like men view it. It is infinitely costly what God did. Infinitely. In fact, as we all know and believe as Bible believers, it is so infinitely costly that it could not from the Old Testament and it cannot in the church age 
and it cannot here in our text ever be merited, earned, or bought. Do you understand what that means? I mean, this is the word freely here is put there by the Holy Spirit of God for a very important reason. Very important reason. That word freely literally means as a gift. We understand this, right? Without payment. Gratis. Gratis. Undeservedly. And brother, without reason. You understand that? You're going to call up the Lord and ask him why he saved you? What reasons do you give me? <laughs> yeah, 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 Job spoke to us last week, and uh, he said that after I questioned God with 77 questions, Howard was just teaching on this, uh, he just went, oh, oh, who darkened this door? Who dares to question me who is infinite? Therefore, what did he say? I will put my hand over my mouth. Oh, brother, when we get a hold of and understand God and His infinite wisdom and power and glory, whew, it really changes how one sees Him. And what He's saying here, this is free. The elect, brother, know and understand that it is God who first draws them to drink, and then God is the one who satisfies their thirst. The elect of God know this. They know this. They know it's God that draws them to drink. They know that it's God who alone who satisfies their thirst. You've all felt it. If you're saved, we talked about it. There's something in the heart of a man or a woman or a child who's truly a child of God when he begins to draw you that you're thirsty for something that nothing else satisfy. And he uses this glorious analogy over and over again in Scripture. Over and over again. It's really quite an amazing thing. Brother Harrison, Psalms 36, verses 7 through 10. Howard, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. And Brother Dean over here. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16. 17. We'll close with these texts tonight. Again, just John's glorious, uh, if you will, the words of God himself. Hey, if you're thirsty, which I'm the one that draws you to drink, and I will fix that thirst. Psalms 36, verses 7 through 10. Please listen. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of man put their trust under the shadow of thy wing. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright man. The electrical. Is the Psalms, is that in the Old Testament? I'm just asking. Who is it that they're thirsting for? Who is it that they know is going to be the one who's going to satisfy that thirst that they have as the river of life? God. God. Isaiah 55. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come eat of the waters, and he that hath no money, come eat. Buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Can I ask you how? Is the book of Isaiah, is that the Old Testament? Yes. I'm just wondering. Because again, the same terminology we hear here in Revelation is the same terminology that God has preached 
and his preachers have preached through every dispensation of time. I believe that was quite a long time that was before quite a long revelation long. was read, even. Yes. <laughs> if, if, if you're thirsty, and this is a the terminology of salvation here. This isn't just I need a drink of water. This has to do with the thirst within your soul. It's salvific in nature. And no money can buy it. You cannot earn it. I mean, it, it's so Nothing. plain right there, right? It's Nothing. come unto me. And yet we have churches it. today that teach all manner of crazy doctrine. <laughs> right, Brother Harrison? I mean, we all know that Moses was saved by sacrificing, right? Abraham was saved by circumcision, right? Yeah, except God said he was saved because he believed before he was saved. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't buy anything. You can't buy from God. In fact, Romans, if we could go there tonight, with, I'll just give you the verse because we're out of time. You know what Romans 5 says. Verse number 1, right? For it is by faith, Right? We were brought in. And then he goes in and talks about how we were enemies of God. We were this, we were that. And then he gets to verse 14. Much more. He uses terminology much more. Is the free gift. That which you can't buy. That which you cannot sell. That which you cannot earn. That which you cannot know. I think Brother John here had a real good grasp on what salvation means how one is saved. In fact, right to the other end, right to almost the very last words in the book of Revelation. Brother Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. We'll close with this tonight. And Jesus has sent my angel to testify of you these things to the churches and the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Whosoever wills are thirsty because God is making them thirsty. And he's drawing them to drink. Three. To believe, to trust, to understand, and to put all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith, not in Mary. And Pope John Paul II did. Remember his last words. Latin. Levi freaks out when I talk about this. Totus Tumus. Totus Tumus. He actually had that embroidered on his little his little burial the ankle over here that he had on. Totus Tumus, Latin for Mary, I'm totally yours. Not me, brother. Not me, sister. The true believer says, Jesus Christ. God the Father, because you drew me. Because the Spirit of God regenerated me, my eyes were open to see the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and trust in Him. Jesus, I am totally yours because of the work you did for me. That's where it ends, brother. That's where it stops. It's glorious, isn't it? Any final thoughts? We gotta. I know we gotta. We gotta close and finish tonight. But one last thing, I was sure. It's amazing, you know, because he mentioned it just a little bit ago, but. It all ties together. Right? So when you started off and you talked about the tabernacle, it's a different tabernacle. But when Jesus on the cross and it is finished, right? Or before he said that, when, you know, after he experiences that three hours of the wrath of God that we can't even imagine, mm -hmm. he went through and willingly, mm -hmm. but the veil ripped in two. Signifying, right, mm -hmm. that, right, God was open yeah. unto all yeah. who would come. Unto him who finished it. Whosoever will come. It's so amazing. You know, this is so hard. That's a fact to give him. Then we see that right, it is done. We think of it as finished. That's why all scripture matters. Because there's a reason for every jot and tittle of it. That's why one must systematically, exegetically study the Bible. Or you will have a very unorthodox view and understanding 
of almost everything fundamental. Almost everything. It's just amazing. You know, as you read, and you read, and you study about other things, then all of a sudden, it, it, it just comes. You know, it just it takes time. It can be whatever. But, well, you know, I never really saw that ties right mm -hmm. over there before. And it, mm -hmm. and it just, you can never exhaust it. You can never exhaust it. Can I just use one example that I grew in? Uh, Dean, some brother Dean, he taught on the head on the head coverings, right? I had always been taught that that was cultural, yep. until I saw a systematic sermon on it and realized that Paul didn't tie the head covering to anything cultural. He tied it right back to the beginning, right yep. back to Genesis, right back there. It goes back there. That goes through every time of dispensation. It goes through every culture. It didn't have anything to do with the culture of Corinth. Well, it, it, it did, but more importantly and more deeply, it was tied back to Genesis. Period. And therefore, I didn't even have to tell my wife. She heard that and looked at it and went, that is really what the Bible says. And again, that's something that every woman has to come to. You can't make them do that. You can't force one to do that. They must come to an understanding. Those sorts of things. By the Spirit of God. That's how Paul learned not to. When, when it tells us, I'm sure a lot of us is very comfortable. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him. In all your ways acknowledge scripture. It doesn't matter what you think. If it doesn't agree with scripture, let it go. It's the same. It's the same thing. Paul did the same thing with women teaching, preaching. It's the same thing. What did Paul take it back to? Oh, did he take it back to culture? No. Like the head like the head covering, he took women teaching in the in the church back to where? Back to Genesis. Back to what Eve did. Back to her sin. This is why. I mean, yes, I got to stop. But those are the things that you learn. Been a, I've been a Christian a long time. And for most of my life, I believed that it was cultural. Until someone came and said, no, no. It's a little deeper than that. Like the deliverance theologians, right? Eventually, everything will be. Somehow yeah. that, you know, stealing is somehow cultural. You know, eventually. Mother Dean was going to 